Jesus sees their deepest and most profound need, and He says their deepest need is to hear the Word of God taught and explained. And that is the primary principal task of the under-shepherd. Let's start from verse 30. Once again, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Last week, we focused on the aspect of the passage that centers on Jesus's compassion. Jesus sees the people who are like sheep without a shepherd and he has compassion on them. And so we talked at length last week about the compassion of Jesus upon the people, the the, uh, compassion that he feels as his love for the people comes together with his realization of their misery. And the result there is this compassion of Jesus. So this week, we see that the compassion of Jesus actually starts before he sees the people who are like sheep without a shepherd. His compassion begins with the apostles, with the disciples. He has compassion on them. Come away to a desolate place. That same word again, come away to this desolate place and rest a while. So we're reminded there that this is, once again, a reminder for us that this is God's favorite place, His preferred place for meeting with His people, and that is the wilderness. Countless times, it seems, throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, we see the same thing repeated, and it's this this instance in which God wants to meet with, with one of His children. He wants to set aside a servant. He wants to meet with them, and His preferred place to meet with them is the wilderness, this desolate place. We could talk about Moses in the bush and how Moses sees the bush and goes and encounters God and meets with God there. We could talk about Jacob. Remember the dream with the staircase to heaven. Or we could talk about Elijah meeting with the Son of God in the wilderness and many other instances. But we could, in seeing these, we could also just recognize that this is how the Gospel of Mark started with John the baptizer going into the wilderness and inviting people to come into the wilderness and encounter God in the wilderness. Or we could look down to just verse 46 at the the story that's going to follow this one and we'll see once again that at the conclusion of this story we read that immediately he made his disciples to get in the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd and after he had taken leave of them he went up on the mountain to pray. So once again Jesus goes again to a desolate place to a secluded place to be with to encounter his father. Or we could remember way back in chapter 1 as all of this really got started in chapter 1 chapter uh, 1 verse 35 we read that uh, Jesus at the conclusion or the next morning after the long day of healing, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to, and there's the same word again, Eremos, the desolate place, the wilderness or the desert to pray. So God has shown us again and again, we'll see the same thing with Paul. As Paul, before he begins his church planting ministry, he goes to the wilderness for years. We see that God calls people to this place of seclusion to encounter Him. It's important to God when God wants to communicate, when God wants to commune, it's important that He get His people to a place that's distraction-free, a place that is without the distractions of people around them or happenings going on, going on around them. So He calls them into this desolate place. He says, come with me. Let's go aside. Let's separate ourselves to this desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure 
even to eat. Verse 32, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot while all the town from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So last week we made note of the fact that what's most likely happening is that the boat is traveling along within sight of the land. And as the boat is traveling along, they've recognized that Jesus and the apostles are on this boat. And so they're watching where the boat's going. And as the boat is traveling along, this crowd goes along and each little village and town that it goes near, more people get together and they're watching where the boat's going and they're going to get there ahead of Jesus and the apostles. Verse 34, and when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were, like we said last week, like sheep without a shepherd. So here was where we stopped ourselves last week and we talked at length about the compassion of Jesus, how he sees the people as sheep without a shepherd, And this seeing them as sheep without a shepherd evokes from him this emotion, this deep and profound emotion of compassion and how what the compassion is both in Jesus and in us. What compassion is, is the intersection of love and misery. When a person is loved and the loved one is encountering misery or suffering, then the result of that is compassion. And the more love that's present, the more capacity for compassion. Likewise, the more misery that the loved one is in, then the more capacity for compassion. So Jesus' compassion upon these who are like sheep without a shepherd is the maximum compassion that he can feel. And he feels this or experiences this compassion upon them, we're told, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And now seeing the compassion of Jesus, and from last week, understanding something about the depth, the profound nature of Jesus' compassion, seeing these people upon whom He has such compassion, we we might be surprised to see what the next phrase is that follows that. We might think that Jesus feeling such compassion on these people would then stop to begin healing them of their infirmities or cleansing their leprosy or restoring their sight or restoring a broken or withered arm or a leg. We might think that Jesus' compassion would move him to address such things of physical suffering and physical misery, but instead we are taken quite by surprise when we read the next phrase, seeing them like sheep without a shepherd, he had compassion and he began to teach them many things. So we have a choice as we look at that phrase there. Jesus saw them sheep without a shepherd. He had great compassion and he began to teach them many things. We've got a choice to make. And the choice is this. The choice is, did Mark just have this run-on sentence, this one thought flows into another, and he's just putting together these episodes. Jesus looks, he has compassion on them. And then the next paragraph, Jesus began to teach them many things. Is that how we should read this? Or rather, having now experienced for six chapters something of Mark's fluidity of thought, of Mark's preciseness of thought, seeing how Mark is putting together the episodes and the stories in such a thoughtful way, should we rather then conclude, well, it seems to me that this phrase is following the previous phrase for a reason. And what would that reason be? That would reason that reason would be just simply cause and effect. And I think that's precisely how we should see the flow of thought in Mark's writing here as cause and effect. There's a cause 
And the first cause is Jesus seeing the people as sheep without a shepherd. And that's the cause. The effect of that is what? The compassion. So Jesus sees the people, sheep without a shepherd. That's the cause. The effect of that is this compassion that wells up in him. Then that becomes another cause. So the cause is the compassion and the effect is the teaching. And that's the part to make sure that we don't miss. There's a a cause and effect. The cause is Jesus' compassion. The effect is His teaching them many things. The teaching is precipitated, is caused by Jesus seeing them in such a state of shepherdlessness. So it says that He began to teach them many things, or that could be also translated, He began to teach them at length. So He either teaches them many things, or he teaches them at length. Either way, it's really getting at the same thing. Jesus teaches them as a result of seeing them in such a state that evokes compassion from him. And seeing them in this state, he then teaches them, but he doesn't teach them sort of maybe some passing, moralistic sort of proverbs. Gives them a few proverbs to take with them. A few pithy little sayings. Maybe tells a story. Instead, He teaches them, like I say, either many things or at great length. Jesus taught them substantive teaching. He taught them at length. He spent hours teaching them, as we saw earlier, through the parable method. He's teaching them many things. He's teaching them in-depth, substantive teaching. So He sees them in great need, and His response is to meet the greatest need first. Because Jesus is, of course, the perfect prioritizer. And seeing the sheep as sheep without a shepherd, Jesus, the perfect prioritizer, is going to meet their greatest need first. Jesus is not the shepherd who is going to give his sheep a bath before he feeds them. He's not going to give the sheep a vaccination before he gives them some clean water to drink. Jesus is not going to meet a secondary need before He meets the primary need. Jesus is not going to feed the sheep before He drives away the wolves that are their predators because He is the perfect prioritizer. So what this is showing for us is that Jesus recognizes that their greatest need is for the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. And that is the one of most, one of the most profound things that comes from this passage. We've seen from chapter one that Jesus' priority from the time he began his ministry to the time that he makes atonement for our sins on the cross, his priority was preaching and teaching. It wasn't miracles. It wasn't healings. It wasn't casting out demons. It was teaching and preaching. Here we see that plain and clear and right out front. Jesus sees them. He feels compassion for them and his compassion moves him to begin meeting their deepest and most profound need, which is to experience the teaching and the preaching of the word of God. Your greatest need is the preaching of the word of God. That might sound like a fantastical type of statement, particularly coming from one who does that, who preaches the word of God. But nevertheless, the Scriptures show us the greatest need of mankind is the proclamation of the Word of God. The greatest need of mankind is to have our thoughts and our minds introduced to the truth of God 
through His Word and having our minds introduced and taught the truth of God, having that transform our souls. In a real way of speaking, your greatest need, of course, is forgiveness of your sins and atonement for your sins and deliverance from the penalty of your sins. But in another way of speaking, the way that that comes to us is by means of the Word of God, of the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. Romans 10 and verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And so the greatest need of humankind is to have your thoughts conformed to the reality of the God who created you and who directs every aspect of your life. That is the greatest need of humankind. And Jesus will meet this greatest of needs first. He understands that the mind is this window to the soul. Romans 12 and verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so Jesus will feed into their minds the truth of the Word of God. So two points of application that we can take from this. First of all, it's clear to see the primacy of preaching, the primacy of preaching, the the primary role that preaching is to take within the kingdom of God. God has determined that His kingdom will always advance, His kingdom will always exist and always go forward by means of the proclamation, the preaching of the Word of God. The church of God will never advance to some new point at which we leave behind the preaching of the Word of God when a man who is raised up by God stands before God's people, opens God's Word and says, this is what God says to His people and this is what it means. The the kingdom of God will never progress beyond that. God has determined that this is how His kingdom will not only be sustained, but also progress forward. The primacy of preaching. This is why God has told us in places like Ephesians 4 that He has raised up preachers and teachers. Because God, God doesn't say to us, here's my word, I've made my word understandable, and I've given you my word, now I want you to just go home and everybody read my word and know my word, and then we'll just all be Christians together. God doesn't say that. Instead, God says that He will always have those who stand before His people and open His Word and say, this is what the Word of the Lord says. So let's think for just a few moments about what this means and what this doesn't mean. One of the things that we know to be true is that God tells us that His Word is understandable by His people. That's what 1 Corinthians 2 tells us. God's Word is supernatural. Hebrews 4 and verse 12 tells us that it's a living and active Word, and so it tells us supernatural realities that the natural man cannot understand. However, if we are possessed of the Holy Spirit, then the Scriptures teach us that His Word is understandable for us. God didn't give us a book of riddles and enigmas. He didn't give us a book of puzzles that only scholars and PhDs or numerologists can understand. He gave us a book that all of His people are capable of understanding. It's plain and clear and straightforward. However, if God's Word is plain and clear and all of God's people who are possessing of the Holy Spirit are able to understand His Word, then why the need for preachers and teachers? Why doesn't God just say, well, you've got the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is your teacher now. Just go home and read your Bible and and enjoy your communion with the Holy Spirit. Why does God still say there there will be those whom He always raises up to be proclaimers of His Word? Well, 
the best way I can put this, I'll, I'll use the words of Alistair Begg, who in handling this scripture in his quaint little Scottish way puts it like this. God has made his word clear and understandable. However, the explanations of God's word, God's word doesn't wear that on its sleeve, he says. Now, what does that mean? That means that God has put forth His Word in such a way that those who are possessing of His Spirit can understand His Word and receive His Word, yet God has still designed His church, His people, to work in such a way that He communicates to you most powerfully and most plainly by raising up one who preaches His Word and putting into His mouth, thus says the Lord. And this is what that means. That's not to say that God's Word is beyond understanding for those who aren't raised up to be the proclaimers. But it is to say that that's how God has designed the economy of His church to work. Can you take your Bible on your own and read it and understand it on your own? Absolutely. Yet at the same time, God has determined that His people will be fed by His under-shepherd standing for His people and saying, this is what the Word of the Lord says and this is what the Lord of, where the Lord means. And so God in His wisdom has, declined, has designed it in such a way. And so this emphasizes for us the eternal primacy of the preacher. But another application that we see coming from this is the primary task of the under-shepherd. If God has determined that the proclamation of His Word will be how His kingdom is sustained and how His kingdom progresses, then it goes without saying that the primary role of the under-shepherd is the proclamation, is the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. That is the central task. That is the fundamental, the foundational task of those who are called to be under-shepherds of God's people is the study for the proclamation of God's Word and the bringing of God's Word to His people. And so God never puts any sort of percentage on this, but, but I, would, I would say something like, I don't know, 95% of the time of God's under-shepherd really should be devoted to that, is the primacy of preaching and teaching. Now, the Western church exists in a culture today in which we have come to see the pastor in many, in many aspects of uh, the, the Western church today, we've come to see the pastor, the role of pastor, as sort of a, a conglomeration of someone who knows the Word and can preach and teach the Word, but also, well, is a good organizer and is a good effective communicator and perhaps is good at com- community organizing and is good at budgeting and can be good at uh, casting visions and foreseeing the future and making plans and getting people organized around Him. You see? Isn't that the description of the successful pastor in many Christian circles today? Is this man that is multi-talented, multifaceted, who has skills in many different areas, and he's a good leader, he's a good organizer, he's a good uh, communicator, he can rally people around him, he can get people excited about his vision and his plan, and he can also teach the Word. And folks, that is just not the, the description of the under-shepherd that we find in the Scriptures. Second Timothy 4, and chapter, and verse 1, Paul says to Timothy, an under-shepherd of the church in, in Ephesus, he says, here is your primary central task Preach the Word. 
Or we think back to Acts chapter 6, when God creates the office of deacon to take some of the load off of the under shepherds, the apostles. And the office of deacon was created so that the apostles could devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And yet, somehow we've, we've developed this, this opinion of a, of a successful, of a, a good pastor, of a, an efficient leader of God's people, of an under-shepherd of God's people, as this person who's so multi-talented and just a natural leader and people want to follow him and rally around him. And I just want us all to see that that's just an absolutely unbiblical picture of a pastor today. That's not to say that God can't gift a pastor with, with other giftings that the church can make use of, but it is to say to beware of the church that places such a description, such an idea on what a pastor should be as this multifaceted type of role. Let me share with you a story from our past that just really emphasizes this whole thing for me. Some years ago, when we began to feel, began to sense that God was leading us to plant, we had a, at least I had a number of connections in Arizona. And as we, we began praying through planting a church, and where would we go to do that? What, where would we do that? We, we had these connections to Arizona, and I kept thinking about Arizona and praying about Arizona, and we, we finally felt like we should really go and explore and, and just see what God might, maybe He would have us to go there. So we went to Arizona, spent some time there, and we made some connections with some church planting organizations there and felt like, well, this is worth taking to the next step to see if God would, would want us to do this, if this would ha- be what He would want us to do. And so we got connected together with the, uh, the sending organization that, that plants churches, that helps to fund church plants, fund church plants in that area. And at the time, it was a sending organization. Everybody in the room knows the name of this organization. I'm not going to say it. But the sending organization was outsourcing to a, a private company the vetting of its potential church planters. And we know, you know what I mean by the process of vetting. So we submitted to that, and it was a long, drawn-out process to be vetted by this secular well, I mean, it wasn't secular. They claimed to be Christians, but, but it was a, a private organization that was being paid to vet candidates. So we go through this long process of, of being vetted and everything culminated in this three-day event, this three-day conference in Nashville in which all the candidates were there and they went through this grueling three-day evaluation in which we were evaluated, or I was, uh, for the most part, I was evaluated in eight facets, eight aspects. There were eight evaluations of me to determine whether or not I was suitable church planting material. Out of eight evaluation segments, one of them had to do with preaching. And so I was evaluated entirely on one 10-minute sermonette. Devotion, I would call it. One 10-minute devotion was the entire evaluation of my ability to handle God's Word in front of people. The other seven evaluation means, weren't they weren't unimportant to pastors. I mean, one of them was evaluating our marriage and, and other aspects, and that, all of that's important. But one out of eight was deemed to be worthy of this evaluation. And then the whole process culminated on the final day, the final session, 
which was a, and this is the embarrassing part, it, it was a completely a surprise. Nobody knew it was coming. It was a surprise at which the, at the end of the, the, the three days, the candidates got on the stage in front of a couple hundred people and completely unprepared, we were asked a series of questions. And those questions were things like, what sort of budget do you need for the first year? What's your budget for the second year? What's your plan for promoting this new church in this new city? What's your plan for advertising? And I mean, I was embarrassed. I had no answers. I said, I don't know. I have no idea. I have no idea what a budget for a church plant would be for the first three years. I have no idea what sort of promotion strategy I would take. But you know what? I can handle the Word of God. And God has raised me up to handle His Word. And that's what I feel like an under-shepherd should be evaluated by. I'd say that story just as by way of communicating to all of us just how distorted some of us within church circles have gotten into, into how we think a pastor, what sort of a person the under-shepherd should be, what the skills of an under-shepherd should be, what the training of an under-shepherd should be. Jesus sees their deepest and most profound need, and He says their deepest need is to hear the Word of God taught and explained. And that is the primary principal task of the under-shepherd. That's not to say other things can't be helpful and important. But it is to say, beware of the church that places priority on their under-shepherds that is anything other than the handling of God's Word. 